0: morning, people of God. Good we praise Him uh, for another opportunity to gather. And, you know, the prayer is, uh, as Walt prayed before us, uh, prayed earlier for us, uh, that this time would be a magnificat to our God, that our preaching and listening to preaching would be itself an act of making God big, making God big in all of our hearts, making God big to one another. and. You know, really, that, that is our job description uh, as we think about all of life. And even as we think about our interactions with one another this morning, as we go out, we leave from here, that our job is to make the Lord big. Make the Lord big as we bear suffering. Make the Lord big as we minister to those who are suffering. Make the Lord big as we admonish and encourage and all the rest. That really is our great job duty and our great honor and joy. If you would, please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. Today we're in chapter 30, verse 22, up through chapter 31, verse 18. So we're going to cover a a good bit this morning. If you are visiting with us today, we are continuing to work our way through the book of Exodus And this is the second book of the Bible. So as a church, several years ago, we went through the book of Genesis. uh, And it's been really neat for me personally, and I I hope for for many of you to to then pick up from that narrative, as we did when we started Exodus, and just to see the way that the story just keeps marching on. And we know that the story ultimately culminates in Revelation, as we see the new heaven and the new earth, and God dwelling with His people As we are marching through the storyline of the Bible. So, we have been uh, for almost a couple of years in the book of Exodus. And I took a look at it this week, and it has been right at three months, been 12 weeks since we started this mini-series on the tabernacle. So, as I often say, uh, one of the joys of going through books of the Bible is you get these little series within a series, these little mini-series that pop up. Uh, and rather than just jump into the tabernacle and do a, do a series on the tabernacle, we've been able to see the tabernacle as it is situated in the book of Exodus. And so, for about three months now, we have been in this little series this mini-series on the tabernacle. God is instructing Moses on how the tabernacle is to be constructed. And a little later, in, uh, towards the end of the book, we're going to get the actual construction of the tabernacle. But here we have the Lord giving the instructions to Moses on how this is to be done. How it is to be constructed and how it is to function with its priests And in terms of uh, the daily rituals that will take place there, the daily sacrifice, the lighting, the sacrifices in the morning and the evening, the light, the tending of the lamps in the morning and the evening, and the incense in the morning and the evening. And all of this goes back to Exodus 24, verse 18. The scene is still the same. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So uh, if it's taken us these three months to go through it, imagine that uh, Moses is up there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights getting this instruction. And, and we really, it's just, it's just mysterious to us what's happening up there. Because we know that if, if we just open up beginning in chapter 25 and we read from there to here, that's not going to take 40 days and 40 nights. So, what are the ways in which a God is revealing these things to Moses as he describes this, as he's ministering to Moses' heart? These are things we just do not know. But we know that Moses is there 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain in the glory cloud with the God of Israel. We started this mini series on the tabernacle in chapter 25, as I said, those first nine verses. And the sermon for that was entitled Introducing the Tabernacle. And you'll remember that's where the contribution is to be taken uh, in order to get all that is needed to construct it. Well, that was the introduction. And today we come to the conclusion. So we will finish the tabernacle, this tabernacle mini series today. This is the conclusion. And it ends with these words in chapter 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, it's interesting because the law, that, that takes us back. To the Ten Commandments, and you'll remember the Book of the Covenant. We spent a, a good bit of time on that as well, and then we moved into the tabernacle. But it just reminds us, we'll talk about that at the end, that the law is very much in view as the Lord is giving this instruction to Moses about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle and the law tightly joined together. So the title for the sermon this morning is A Holy conclusion. And as you will see when we read the text, these final portions of the tabernacle section are saturated with the language of holiness. I mean, you just go through and count the number of times that holy or sanctify or consecrate or sacred, all of this holiness language, just go through these verses. And in a moment, we'll read it. And I want you to look out for that language as we're going through. This is a theme That we've been discussing all along. It is a major theme. And let me just plead with you on this. Never grow tired of the theme of holiness. Never grow tired of the theme of God's holiness. This is the great theme of the universe. It is the great song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What truth is more important than this one great truth that God is holy. And not just holy, but holy, 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 supremely holy, most holy, infinitely holy. How could we ever grow tired of this great truth and all that it entails for our lives? So we've seen it many times. The tabernacle is about the holy God being worshipped by his holy people in the holy place and in a holy way. That's a summary, really, of this entire tabernacle section. All about holiness. Being set apart and pure for God's special purposes. God's holiness and his glory are Integrally connected. God's holiness expressed in his glory. God's glory expressed in his holiness. Today, as this section concludes, it is like we get a holiness explosion. And I struggled with what to call this. I was going to call it a holy climax. But in, in a sense, it's not really climactic uh, in, in terms of the details. We're going to talk about the anointing oil, and we'll talk about the different kinds of spices. And you, you don't really think of that as climactic. We, we have the priests and their ministry, and we have all of this atoning language. And, and then we have the Ark of the Covenant and, and all of that. So it's difficult to think of this as a climax, but it is a conclusion it is a holy conclusion, and holiness explodes throughout. Now, let me just say this to us as we're leaving the tabernacle section. I think this theme of holiness, this emphasis on holiness for us, as we, as we move on, we, ne- we never move on from the theme of God's holiness, but as we move on today from the tabernacle, I think it at least brings us th- to three things elevating, purging, and focusing. So we've seen so much emphasis on God's holiness and all the holiness that 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 entails for us. And I think these are three acts, these are three heart dispositions that we are called to with this great theme, elevating, to elevate the Lord. This is exactly what Walt was saying earlier. This is magnifying the Lord. This is lifting him up. The tabernacle is meant to put us in a state of awe, a state of worship of this great Majestic, glorious, redeeming, loving God. So it elevates our worship. It raises our affections for God. It raises the temperature on our praise. And then purging. You simply cannot read the tabernacle section. And consider the truth that we have become, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the tabernacle of God, that we have become the temple of the living God. You simply cannot deal with that mentally without saying in your heart, I must purge myself of sin, the sin that so easily ensnares us, the sin that weighs us down, the sin that does not communicate. God's holiness. The sin that does not elevate his glory. This is a time of purging. It is also a time of focusing. A time of focusing ourselves on this great God as the one great reality. We see as we go through The tabernacle, this emphasis on serving God. The tabernacle is all about God's service. And so the priests start to carry out the service of the Lord, the service of his praises. And that's exactly what our lives are. They are consumed with the Lord. Our focus is often on so many things, so many good things even, so many things that consume our thinking minutes, our thinking hours, and the tabernacle and all the holiness of it calls us to single-mindedness, that everything we do, we do unto the Lord, that everything we do, we do consciously for Him, elevating, purging, and focusing, and in all of this we do it with a recognition that the entire tabernacle is fulfilled in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do it out of the gospel. We do all of this elevating, all of this purging, all of this focusing, knowing that it is through the sacrificial lamb, through the Christ, the lamb of God, who takes away our sins and who has taken away our sins. It is through him that we do all of this unto the Lord. So I pray that the theme of holiness has not become old to you, has not become boring to you, but that it is weighing down heavy upon all of us and lifting us up in Jesus. So if you would please stand as we read God's word together we're going to read Exodus 30:22 all the way up to 31:18 this is the word of God the Lord said to Moses take the finest spices of liquid myrrh 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it You shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. By the way, remember to look out for this holiness language. Verse 27. And the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Stacte and Annika and Galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting. Where I shall meet with you, it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Uh, I think the Lord is being clear. Very clear. Holy to the Lord. Verse 38, "...whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people." And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability That they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you they shall do verse 12 and the lord said to moses you are to speak to the people of israel and say above all you shall keep my sabbaths for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that i the lord sanctify you you shall keep the sabbath because it is a because it is holy for you everyone who profanes it shall be put to death whoever does any work on it shall that soul shall be cut off from among his people Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. You can go ahead and be seated. You will see that we are going to be entering into some narrative with the golden calf. That's going to be occupying our attention for some time. And then you can go ahead and skip ahead and you can see that the construction of the tabernacle after that golden calf incident and all that's there surrounding it and following it uh, will basically bring the book of Exodus to a close. And so I just want to repeat one thing that um, I've said before. When you think of Exodus, uh, there, there, there is a sense in which the very first thing you should think of is the tabernacle. Now, why do I say that? Because it's not. It's not the first thing we think of. We think of the people being brought out of Egypt. We think of the plagues. We think of the sea parting. Well, if if we are to just simply consider how much space is given to a topic, what we're meant to understand is that all that we're reading in the early parts of Exodus culminate in the, the presence of God with the people in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is all about the presence of God with his people. It is all about God dwelling with his people. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we get to be in it, to study it, uh, to apply it to our lives. Lord, we thank you for your holiness and all that that means for our conduct, all that that means for our prayers and for uh, how we spend our time and what we say and don't say and what we do and don't do. And Lord, how we worship you, how we treat others, how we govern our own impulses, how we fight sin and all the rest, Lord, we praise you that this great theme of holiness stands out above all the others, Lord, because you are holy. God, we thank you that through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we become holy in your presence and through the Holy Spirit more and more day in and day out we become more and more like this holy Christ. Father, what a joy it is to think that one day we will dwell with you with absolutely no barriers and absolutely no sin. And we will, like you, like Christ, we will be holy, truly holy. Fully, holy, actually holy. Lord, we thank you that this is already underway in the already part of the new creation. But we praise you, God, that one day you will bring what has already begun to a final consummation. And we will be holy forever with our holy God. Lord, we thank you for this great Uh, end result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we praise you this morning as those who have been redeemed, whose sins have been washed away. We thank you, Father, for this great hope that we have. And we pray that this hope would pull us and drive us as we live out the Christian life in holiness of life. God, we pray that you would guide this sermon by your spirit in the preaching and in the listening, and that you would do your work in our hearts for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this concluding section, centered on holiness, gives us three things to consider. And here they are, you'll see them on the screen. Three things, the holy mixtures first, secondly, the Holy Spirit, and then third, the holy day. So for the holy mixtures, we'll get verses 22 to 38, the Holy Spirit is uh, presented to us here verses 1 to 11, and the holy day in verses 12 to 18. And hopefully we'll see the ways in which these tie together. So let's begin first with the holy mixtures. I want to read that again, so let's put that clearly in focus. Verses 22 to 38. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, And five hundred of cassia, according to the the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. By the way... As we're reading that, you're meant to be replaying all of that in your mind. We've already, we've covered all that, right? So you're meant to go back and say, okay, yep, that, we talked, yep, yep, that, yep, that, all that we've just read. Verse 29, you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations." It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. And the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte and anica, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people." We have two categories here, the anointing oil on the one hand, and the incense on the other. Both of them have been mentioned already, so this is not new to us. We, we know that there's oil that has been used. We've seen how it's been used, and we know that there is incense. So we've already received this information, at least in seed form, but here in this section, The Lord describes them to Moses in more detail. And what we find is a threefold pattern. So we can look at the the oil and the incense and we see a pattern, a threefold pattern as you go through each of these. And it could be captured in this way. Composition, application, and restrictions. If you want to write those down, at least for this point. Composition, application, and restriction. So let's look at each of these. First, composition. The composition of the anointing oil and the incense are described at the very beginning of each section in detail. Verses 22 to 25 for the oil and verses 34 to 35 for the incense. And there's a lot of information there. But what I want to do is hone your mind in on some of the language that is used in those sections, those two sections. The finest Spices, the chief spices, literally. A sacred anointing oil as blended by the perfumer. This is done carefully, it is done well, it is blended as a sacred anointing oil. It is a holy anointing oil. And then when we come to the incense, an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. So here I just want to make the very basic note that in both cases, the description ends on the note of holiness. And you see that as you look at verses 22 to 25 and then verses 34 to 35. In all that description, the end is holiness. Each of these blends is to be Holy, set apart for the Lord, set apart for his praises, set apart for the ministry of the tabernacle as it is being carried out by the priests. Second, we see the application. And by the way, let me just say on some of those, you can see notes in your Bible. I won't belabor the individual spices and where each of those come from and all of that, but you will see notes in your Bible where you can look down at the bottom and some of that information is given. And I I should also say that not all of those spices are clearly identifiable today in English. And so it's similar to the stones. We talked about how those stones, they're sort of best guess Uh, from scholars and those who study cognate, ancient Near Eastern languages to try to figure out precisely what those stones are. And the same is true here with some of these spices. But the big idea, the point we are to get, is that this is specific and it is holy. It is unique. Second, we see the application. So why are these mixtures, these blends, these compositions sacred. What makes them holy? Well, of course, they're holy because God said they are holy. God has designed it that way. God has uh, identified it that way. But what we see here is that the holiness of these mixtures has to do with their use. Uh, They're not just sort of a dangling holy thing. It has to do with their function They are set apart for a particular purpose. That is what makes them holy. They're holy because of what they do, what they are meant to be used for. They are to be used in a particular way. Now let me just make an observation here just to draw out a little bit of an implication for us. Being is never divorced from doing. Identity is never divorced from functionality. Our standing in Christ before God always shows itself up in practical, lived-out ways. Let me say it this way. Being holy people means living holy Lives, these holy substances, these holy mixtures are connected in their holiness to their holy use. And let me just say this to us. We don't like to think in these terms, but it is true biblically. We are to be useful. We are to be useful in our holiness. God has saved us, not simply so that we might be saved. Not simply so that we might be identified with Christ, and that is the end of the story, but so that we might go out into the world, and you, you simply cannot read the Sermon on the Mount, and for that matter, anything in the New Testament, anything in the whole Bible without understanding this, that we are to go out and to live out that holiness for the glory of God. We exist for one reason. The end is not our own salvation, it is the glory of God. Of God. All of our lives for the glory of God. Not passive, dangling, contemplative being, but active, zealous doing out of our being. The oil here is used for anointing the tabernacle and its furniture as well as the priests. And so you see that. We get a repeat of those items in verses 26 to 30. Moving out from the tent of meeting as an entire structure. And uh, let me get you guys back there if you could to put up that slide for us. Just to kind of to put these things back in view as we move away from the tabernacle. We get a repeat of these items that we've discussed. And we've spent, like I said, three months looking at this. You see uh, the, the tent itself and all the furniture within the tent. You see the courtyard and the bronze altar and the bronze basin within the courtyard. You even get a little, uh, a little, little high priest and a, and a priest there in the center. This is what we've been talking about. And this is what is in view. And all of that is to be anointed. The whole tent... All the furniture within the tent, all the furniture in the courtyard, and those two little guys right there in the middle. This is all to be anointed with this oil. And the anointing is about consecration. It is about setting apart these items and these men as holy to the Lord, as serving a particular purpose. Now we know, and it was even the case in ancient Israel that rightly understood the just shall live by faith, those who had faith in their hearts who were truly redeemed by the future Christ's work, those who were saved in that sense among the Israelites. These were those Who are set apart in their hearts. And this anointing is about consecration of something particular. All of those who are living for the Lord, all of life is holy. If they they live for the Lord, then their their worship is everything they do. When they care for their animals, as they're raising their children, everything for the faithful Israelite was worship. Nonetheless, The work of the tabernacle was to be set apart. It was to be consecrated. All that was in it and all who would serve it were to be set apart. And that's what we find here with the oil. It is a holy anointing oil that makes things holy. Verse 29, and it sets the priests apart for their tabernacle service. Now we see the same thing with the incense down in verse 36. Look there with me. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. What we find here is that this incense is going to be applied within the tent. It's going to be used in the tent. We know that the the altar of incense is there in front of the veil. And then behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. This incense would have been brought in, some of it brought in, on the Day of Atonement. As we read in Leviticus 16... But this incense also would have shielded the view of the high priest as he goes in one day on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, and he puts blood on the mercy seat. The incense there, the smoke of the incense, shielding the view of the ark. The incense has a function, the oil has a function, and it is holy. And as I've said before about the incense, this is the smell of divine worship in the inner sanctum of God's throne room. This is a unique smell. It is not to be associated with anything else. There is to be one singular smell that pervades the tabernacle. And it is not to be associated with anything else but the worship of the living God, the God of the Hebrews, the God who made heaven and earth, the I Am who is faithful to his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that brings us to our third point here and that is restriction. As we see this threefold pattern, we see composition and application, and now finally we come to restriction. Both the oil and the incense come with restrictions. There are limitations on how they are to be used. For the oil described in verses 31 to 33, it is to be a lasting ordinance that is only to be placed on priests and that is not for private use. In other words, this is not a perfume. Uh, It is made by a perfumer. Uh, It is blended by one who knows how to do that sort of thing with an olive oil base and then the addition of spices in order to create a perfume, But this is not to be a perfume. It is a consecrating agent. It is a device that the Lord uses in order to communicate His holiness and His people's sinfulness and to prepare them for the gospel and the regenerating work of the Spirit. It is a consecrating agent for the worship of the living God. Not a perfume. And that is why the Israelites are not even to make anything like it. It doesn't just say that they're not to wear anything like it. It says they're not to make anything like it. They're not to even get close to using this for any other purpose than that which God had ordained for his praises. The same is true of the incense as we read in verses 37 to 38. So, verse 37 says, You shall not make for yourselves, you shall not make for yourselves, it shall be for you holy to the Lord. So, this incense, once again, as with the oil, is not for private use in individual homes. This is the smell of God's house. This is what God's house is to smell like no single israelite's house is to smell that way anyone who does not abide by these restrictions is to be cut off from his people and this can involve banishment or death and let me just say this as we finish up this morning uh, with this particular point as we're thinking about this oil and this incense this may seem really trivial to you right i mean come on some some oil some incense it's really a big deal. And what I want you to see is that faithfulness is in the small things, right? Think about that for a moment. We tend to think about these big moments, these big moments of, of standing up for the Lord, these big moments of service. I once had a professor in seminary say one time, actually a well-known uh, scholar, uh, Andreas Kostenberger, he, he, he's a well-known scholar of John's gospel, but I remember him saying in class that, that living for the Lord is, is really just in the small mundane things of life. It, it really is. It's just in the day in and day out acts of faithfulness, choices to serve others, not self, choices to say no to impulse rather than yes Choices to make God great rather than all the earthly things. Choices to hope in Christ and not in self or future attainments. In all these little moments of life, there is a faithful life. There will be no grand, climactic, faithful life apart from day in, day out minutia. That is where it matters and by the way, all the big explosive things that we tend to think of, it comes out of and they grow out of this mundane, simple minutia of holiness before the Lord, of saying no when the flesh wants to say yes, of saying yes when the flesh wants to say no. Before we move on to the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 11, I want to make one observation here about the composition of the oil and incense. Now, one of the things we do find, and I've said this before, is sometimes there can be quite fanciful interpretations of uh, passages. And, And I remember when I preached last Christmas on the wise men. And we had the picture of the wise men coming with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And they bring that to Jesus. And I remember I had a quote there from Calvin where Calvin is critiquing some of the fanciful ways that that's been taken. And just how there's all sorts of of ways that that gets described. And I mentioned there how the myrrh does appear to anticipate his death. I think having gone through this passage, I I just feel like my mind has just exploded on this particular point. And here it is. As we consider the wise men coming to Jesus with gold and frankincense and myrrh, it just amazes me that when we come to the end of the tabernacle, we get these three things in view. The gold, which is what these things are made of as the list is going through, and of course the gold being at the center with the Ark of the Covenant, the pure gold. And then here with the oil, we get this mention of myrrh. And then with this incense, we get the mention of frankincense. It just reminded me in my mind that as all of the Israelites are are bringing the gold and the the myrrh and the frankincense to this spot, that there's this picture of the wise men bringing the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh to the dwelling place of God in baby Jesus. An incredible picture, an incredible picture. And then when we consider that in that moment, in that moment of wise men with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and baby Jesus, we have there the furniture, the oil, the incense, the presence, the dwelling place of the Lord, the priest, the altar, and the sacrifice, all present in that moment of the Christ child being praised by these Gentiles. What a picture. And so it's hard for me not to see that. Calvin might call that fanciful, but it seems to me striking that here we get in this final section, this mention of frankincense and myrrh. Secondly, we move on to the Holy Spirit, verses 1 through 11. Read that with me if you would. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. And finally worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So who is going to make all of these holy objects, these holy structures and holy mixtures? It's interesting here that it will not boil down to mere human skill or talent. We know that God gives many natural endowments to human beings for carrying out all kinds of work. Some paint beautiful paintings. Some build magnificent skyscrapers. Some design passenger airplanes. Some compose heart-penetrating novels. And some carry out heart transplants, which we've seen recently. And praise God for those individuals and all the training and all the skill that goes into that. We praise God for all of these natural endowments, and we take so much of it for granted just as we go about our daily lives. I mean, this is just something that we just take for granted. We don't even think about it. The big things we give God praise for. But so many graces just sprinkled over humanity. A God rejecting humanity. What grace! The Lord has given to man. All these natural endowments, we recognize that God has given them in his common grace. We are all made in his image and we all have something to contribute to this world in which God has placed us. No matter who you are, God has given you in his image something that you contribute to the human race. So know that. Know that. These skills and natural abilities will certainly come in handy when it comes to building the tabernacle and all that goes with it, but but, what we find here is a supernatural grace that is given. All that will be built and all the work that will be carried out will ultimately boil down to a supernatural agent, and that's not something we think about when we think about the tabernacle. Here's some guys who are pretty good with wood and some guys who are pretty good with with, uh, metal work and uh, those who are pretty good at embroidery and all of that. But this will ultimately boil down to a supernatural agent. Here he is called in verse 3 the Spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit and he's called the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51 by David, for example. This is the third person of the Trinity, the one present at creation. As we read in Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you see this in verses 2 to 3. I have called by name Basilel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now one of the things that's really interesting here is the language mirrors what we find of God in creation. There's a lot going on here. We have the presence of the Spirit, and then we have the language of God's creation. We have the presence of the Spirit, and the language of God's construction, the language of constructing this building or this structure Proverbs chapter 3 verses 19 to 20 gives us similar language for the Lord in creating the world. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So what is happening here? There is a line that is being drawn between creation and the tabernacle. Once again, in the presence of the Spirit, the empowering of the building, the presence of the Spirit, and the creating which gave rise to Eden, once again, we've got this glorious theme of returning to Eden. It's embedded all throughout the tabernacle. So there is this Spirit of God person, this powerful agent, who will fill Basilel for the purpose of overseeing the work of the tabernacle. All of the designing and cutting and carving and crafting that will be needed. And in verse 6, we get a description that this supernatural endowment will spill over to others who will help Basilel do the work. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The sense appears to be that God will both empower natural abilities and he will infuse special abilities. But here's the point. This is important. We are meant to understand the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle as a supernatural affair. Let me say it this way. The building of the tabernacle is in the category of manna, water from a rock, and the parting of the sea. And that's probably something you haven't thought about. You think of it in terms of just mere human ability. Of course there are craftsmen. Of course there are people who can do this sort of work. But what we're told here is that the entire endeavor is superintended by the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and, and that the workers are empowered by the Spirit to carry out their work. And we see the reason for this in verse 11. The focus all along is adherence to God's design and God's command. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. We've just mentioned the oil and the incense. Everything shall be according to God's command. Let me say it this way. God commands them, and then he helps them to do what he has commanded them to do. Now, that's really important for us in living the Christian life. God doesn't just dump like a a dump truck of commands on us. Now, go and do. And he's kind of sitting back watching, kind of rubbing his chin to see how... uh, That's not the Lord. That's not what God does. God gives us commands. And then he empowers us by his spirit to carry out the things he's commanded us to do. What a gracious God. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. Before we move on to the holy day, I want to draw out one final implication for us. What we are reading here with Basilel and Aholiab, This is a picture of how we are to understand spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, this is something we find throughout the New Testament, Ephesians and Romans and 1 Corinthians and other places. This is a picture of of spiritual gifts. God grants gifts to his children that may be in varying ways connected to natural ability but that are nonetheless special gifts for building up the household of God. So we have Bezalel and Aholiab gifted by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit for the building up of God's praises in the tabernacle. In the same way, we have the Holy Spirit giving gifts to each of us. All of us have gifts from the Holy Spirit for the building up of the household of God, for the building up of Christ's. Church. First Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. First Peter 4:10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let me say this to us: our spiritual gifts are not to be sat upon. It's not something we bury. We're going to give an account to the Lord for buried gifts or for boomerang gifts, gifts that are used merely for our own pleasure, gifts that are used merely for our own personal building up. These gifts are for others. They go out to build up the tabernacle of God that is Christ's church, his body. And it is the Holy Spirit, Who carries out God's holy work. And here's the mystery and the beauty and the grandeur of it. He uses us. What wonder that he would use us to do anything. But he uses us to carry out his holy work. Finally, we come to the holy day. We've seen the holy mixtures, the Holy Spirit, and we finish up with the holy day. Look at verses 12. To eighteen, and the Lord said to Moses, "You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep My Sabbaths, for this is a sign between Me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who, <coughs> excuse me, who profanes it shall be put to death." It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So verse 11 ends on the note of following God's commands. You can see how these sections, these passages are wedded together. It ends on this note of following God's commands in the building of the tabernacle. And that transitions perfectly into the next section on the Sabbath that we find here. One might be tempted to think at this point that the tabernacle building makes top priority. It makes the list at the very top. It is Number one, we've got to get this thing built and built rightly no matter what. But it is at this point that a reminder is needed. You can imagine guns blazing. we got to get this thing built, the excitement of it. God's going to dwell here with his people. And then there is this need for a reminder. In all your work, in all your doing, one thing you must not forget, to rest, to stop, on the Sabbath, the Israelites are to work and work and work on the tabernacle, but they must not allow even that holy work to compromise God's holy day. Why? Why? Why, why that focus and why that focus here? And why the seriousness of it all? The reason given here is very important for understanding the nature of The Sabbath. Now, I talked about this, and you can go back. I'm not going to belabor the point here. But I talked about the nature of the Sabbath when we looked at it in the Ten Commandments. And there was the the sermon devoted to that. And then the beginning of the next sermon, if you're interested in that, I am not what what some would call a Sabbatarian. I do not understand the Lord's Day to be the Christian Sabbath. Uh, I I do not understand those to be transferable in that way. And I see the the Sabbath day as something that is uniquely a sign of the Mosaic covenant. It is a sign of God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. And we see that language. And by the way, if you're interested, like I said, go back and listen to those sermons and uh, pay particular attention. I would encourage you to Paul's language in Romans 14 and Colossians 2. But let me show you the logic that we get here, verse 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. In other words, let me say it this way. Insofar as God has sanctified his people, Israel, They are as a picture of that reality to sanctify one day in the week. It is a living, breathing, weekly picture of the reality that God has sanctified his people. That's what we have here. It is a sign of the Mosaic covenant. It is unique to Israel in that way. And one thing I'll say is when I talked about the Sabbath, uh, I talked about the principles that derive from the Sabbath, the notion of rest and all of that, but I do not believe that a Sabbath ceasing, that's what Sabbath means, means rest or stopping is required of Christians or binding on Christians weekly. It is wise and good and right and fitting and in line with creation to cease from our work regularly. But I do not believe it is binding on Christians to maintain a Christian Sabbath. And what we find here is that it is a sign of the covenant with Israel at Sinai. The Sabbath day for the Israelites is a unique sign of their sanctification, of their being set apart as a nation. It is a sign of the Mosaic covenant, and it is rooted in and anticipated in creation. As we read in verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And it is a pointer to the rest that is given in Christ and that will be realized at his return and the consummation of all things. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of Israel. God, fulfilled in Christ and anticipated in the consummation of all things when Christ returns. The penalty for disobedience to this command is death, and it highlights the top priority of obedience. Now, let me just say this to us. Imagine that the Israelites get this tabernacle structure perfectly constructed, perfectly built, but they're not keeping the Sabbath. It's as though the whole thing has fallen apart. What's the point of the worship of God without obedience? What's the point of constructing this elaborate thing where you can approach God when the people will not even obey his word? Let me also say this regarding obedience. We cannot go our own way even in doing God's work. Let me just ask you that this morning. Are there ways in which right now you are doing God's work, quote unquote, but not in God's way? There is a way to be about the things of God that transgress God's commands, even in doing God's work. And this focus on on obedience to the Lord comes clearly into view as we finish the passage in the very last verse, verse 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, isn't that interesting that the tabernacle section concludes with the law? And we see that in two ways it concludes with the Sabbath law and it concludes with the tablets of stone. Remember, the whole tabernacle structure is centered on the tablets inside the ark. The covenant, the lordship of God, Yahweh, the obedience and adherence to the one true and living God. That's what our lives are about. Out of the gospel, out of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, submitting to our God and obeying his commands for his glory. That's why we live. That's why all of us are breathing still. Praise God, we're breathing still. That's why. That's why you haven't fallen over yet you still got things to do for the glory of God. And until we fall over, we have much to do in obedience to God, empowered by the Spirit for His glory. And so we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning as You have fed us from it. God, we praise You that You are holy and that Your Spirit makes us holy in Jesus. God, we thank you that uh, the tabernacle holds out for us so much hope. We have it fulfilled even now, but Lord, even as we think about it with the, the tabernacle and the Sabbath and, and the being in your presence, all of that pointing towards the consummation, Lord, we still have much to look forward to. And so, God, we praise you, that, we praise you and we ask that this hope would pull us into the days ahead. Whatever that means, Lord, whatever that means for us tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and next week and next month and next year and next decade, Lord, whatever time you give us on this earth, that this hope in Christ of these eternal realities would pull us forward through trials, through doubts, through sin, Lord, that you would be our help in every time of need. We know you will. And we praise you for that before you have even done it into the future. In Jesus' name.